Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Smith, who has been director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center since 1999 and is professor of practice in the UNH Department of Political Science. He has more than 30 years of experience in academic survey research and is past president of the Association of Academic Survey Research Organizations and is vice president and president-elect of the New England chapter of the American Association for Public Opinion Research. Professor Smith has published in multiple journals and is co-author with David Moore of The First Primary, New Hampshire's Outsized Role in Presidential Nominations. Professor Smith, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Ben, thank you very much for having me. Well, to start off, we're only about two weeks away from the 2020 elections, and there is just so much to talk, so much to talk about. So first, could you please tell us a bit about what the UNH Survey Center does and describe where polls suggest important state races in New Hampshire currently stand? Well, the New Hampshire Survey Center has been conducting um, surveys, political polls in New Hampshire since 1976. Uh, I've been here since 1999, and uh, I haven't even counted on how many elections this is, but uh, we've consistently done uh, political polling in the state, and and I think we are uh, seen as the, the longest running and most accurate and most consistent organization in the state. So we've been conducting um, polls during the primary and during the general elections as well. This year, we have a little bit of a different twist in that we've been changing our methodology over the last four to five years, investigating other ways of, of conducting survey research that are less expensive and easier to do for respondents, but keeping the probability basis that has made public opinion polling um, so helpful over the last 50 years. So we've been building a panel of people in New Hampshire, and now we have about 6,000 people included in our panel, and we can send subsets of that panel surveys by email um, and complete surveys much more quickly and for a far le- uh, lower cost than was the case in the past. So we can, we've been able to conduct a lot more surveys this year and explore some other areas uh, that we have questions about with uh, voters than we have been able to in the past. Oh, that's really fascinating. And I'd love to get into the rationale behind starting that later in the podcast. It really sounds like you've created a representative sample of New Hampshire voters. Um, so, just building on that, building on that, where do you see uh, current state races in New Hampshire going based on the polling that you've been doing? Well, I, I would put one caveat in, and we can talk about this later. That I do think there is a percentage of voters who are, kind of, for lack of a better term, shy Trump voters who don't want to talk with pollsters, but who are going to come out and vote for Trump anyway. We saw this in 2016, and there's evidence that this is the case. Um, in 2020, both in New Hampshire and other states as well. But what we're seeing in New Hampshire with that caveat is that Joe Biden has a, uh, a fairly sizable lead, about a 12 percentage point lead over Trump. Um, and the uh, Senate race, uh, Gene Shaheen, I think, is comfortably ahead of, of Corky Messner and um, won't have any difficulty uh defeating him and his campaign is having some difficulties as well. In the governor's race, this is the one bright spot for Republicans. John Sununu has extremely high 
job approval ratings, uh, in particular for his handling of COVID-19, looks to be uh, able to win fairly comfortably over Dan Feltus, his challenger, who's the president of the state Senate, but still largely unknown to most people in the state. Uh, the two congressional seats are largely to stay in the hands of Democrats. But in my view, the, the fascinating thing to watch are the, the races for state House and state Senate. Our generic ballot questions on that indicate that the state Senate is likely to be a, a 12 to 12 tie right now, but that the state House um, could swing um, either Republican or Democrat with just the change of a percentage point or so in the popular vote. The importance of that race is that if Democrats take the House and the Senate, they'll be able to control or have significant control over redistricting for the next 10 years. And that could uh, go a long way to keep Republicans out of um, uh, control of Concord, because right now the current district lines require that Democrats win 53 to 54 percent of the popular vote to win majorities, neither the House or the Senate. So those are the things that I'm paying attention to. Um, the House and the Senate, to me, are going to be the fascinating races. That's fascinating, and it's just going to be so interesting to see how this pans out very soon. Um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted this election? You already mentioned that Sununu has high drop approval ratings because of it. Um, but how has it impacted the election and also your coverage of it? Um, it certainly impacted the, the, the election in many, many ways. Um, one thing that it's done is it's... Uh, stop face-to-face -face campaigning largely. Uh, we're seeing it pick up a little bit here at the end, but the typical sort of campaigning you would see in the summer with large events uh, where um, candidates would come in and speak to large crowds or participate in parades and fundraising dinners and stuff, that's just largely been shut down. Um, and that to me is kind of the fun part of politics. It's the face-to-face -face <laughs> personal part of politics that we just haven't yeah. seen. Uh, certainly when Donald Trump contracted uh, COVID-19, that was a, a big curveball in the, in the race here at the end. He wasn't able to, uh, first off, participate in that debate, this, the, the scheduled second debate, which I think he probably would have wanted to be in given the debacle of the first debate. Uh, and then he wasn't able to, to uh, hold a number of those rallies that he had planned. And those rallies were quite effective for him in 2016 and, and this year as well before that hit. I think that um, he would have been able to continue those, uh, those rallies, and that might have been helpful for him uh, going forward. But the whole feel of the, of the election is unusual. It feels like you're just you're just really watching it on television, and um, it feels strange. But then again, much of what's gone on throughout to, uh, 2020 has felt strange in that same sort of way. Yeah. Yes. Just absolutely. Um, so, with that more distanced, purely televised mode of campaigning, do you think that Trump has enough time to turn things around in this election? He's, of course well behind Biden in the polls as of right now. Yeah, and I think that it, 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 if this were a typical election, and I don't mean just for this year, but uh, if this were election were being held 10, uh, 20 years ago, I would say, no, there really wasn't any time because polling back then was quite different 
and it was much more accurate than polling today. The biggest problem that we have with polling today is our not our response rates are so low. Um, national polls mm-hmm. are only getting about five percentage point, five uh, percent response rates, meaning that they call 100 houses, only five of them are going to answer, and the other 95 aren't going to answer. Wow. So that problem of potential non-response is much different. That I think led to a number of the problems that we saw in 2016. Uh, especially with state polling that was done with where we had some pretty low quality polling that was being done. Uh, That's also, I think, a major problem this year in that the polling averagers, the 538s and the 270 to win, et cetera, real clear politics, Mm -hmm. are using suspect polls as part of the data that go into the compilation of their averages and then into the models that they use to predict who's going to win. And there's an old old saying in computers, garbage in, garbage out. We saw that that happened in 2016. I don't think that uh, the uh, poll aggregators have really improved their, uh, frankly, their knowledge of survey research. They're good statisticians, but I don't think they have a good knowledge of survey research. And I'm hesitant to rely on the model's predictions um, because I just don't think they're really handling uh, data good. They're, they're, they're including well-done, um, gold standard, high-performance, high um, uh, long track record polls in their models, and also including crummy polls done by fly-by-night companies with suspect methodologies. That's very interesting. Hmm. And I use an analogy for my students, uh, take two glasses of water. One is pure spring water uh, that you've just gotten out of you know, the Poland spring jar. And then the other water, uh, the other glass of water is water that you dipped into a drainage ditch and pulled out. Um, mix those two together, which is the equivalent of mixing good poles and bad poles together. And ask yourself, would you want to drink that uh, glass of water that was mixed from those two sources. Um, mixing bad and good doesn't make something better. Yeah, that's quite the indictment of Nate Silver. Um, out of curiosity though, if these lower quality polls can get a large enough sample size, wouldn't the central limit theorem indicate that you know they'd eventually become representative of the views of the American population? What's the problem with well, these the, the, the central limit theorem doesn't is, is probably the least important source or excuse me, sample size is probably the least important source of error in surveys, the margin of sampling error. There are so many other sources of error that are far bigger, potentially far, far bigger. Non-response error is one example. Question order, response order, um, um, the, the, the method that you use to collect the data. Those are all far greater potential sources of error than sampling error. And sampling error just can't account for those other sources of error. Um, we've been lucky in the past uh, that that uh, non-response issues haven't seemed to have had too great of an issue, uh, an impact on polling, but 2016 in many, many of the state polls showed that that was a major issue. The APOR valuation of the 2016 polls showed that was definitely the case. And pollsters don't use the same methods for weighting their data, uh, for selecting likely voters, 
Um, many of the polls that are included in those uh, samples are not even polls of likely voters. They're of uh, general, uh, they may be just registered voters or they may be just adults. Um, the sampling frames that are used are, can vary very di uh, differently. Random digit dialing would be the gold standard of uh, reaching people, but many people use lists of, uh, of uh, registered voters. And those lists typically have only about 50 to maybe two-thirds of the names on the list have telephone numbers on, uh, associated with them. So they're systematically excluding a lot of people that way. So there's a whole other source of error out there that aren't even calculated. They don't even come into the calculation of um, margins of sampling error. I see. Well, thank you very much for explaining that. And how is what the Survey Center is doing now um, attempting to counteract that, I guess? Well, we've always relied on probability-based surveys, and we've always looked at uh, academic survey research. I think the thing that we try to do is improve the methods that are used by people all across the industry. Um, and uh, we've been moving to this large panel, which we've recruited, in order to try to get around the cost problem and to improve our response rates. Um, we're not alone in this. The Pew Center for the People in the Press is doing this as well. And I suspect that by 2022, that you're going to be more and more organizations that are doing this. So what we're doing this year is trying to uh, uh, calibrate, I guess, the way I would say it, our, our, um, our web-based surveys, our probability-based web panel surveys with our traditional random digit dialing surveys and with election results. So we're looking at 2016 as a way of better understanding how we at the Survey Center and frankly, how the industry of survey research will go forward uh, for the 2022 election and years beyond that. Uh, we started off in election polling with face-to-face -face surveys with non-probability samples. Then we went to quota samples. Then we went to random samples in person. And then in the 1960s and 70s, we moved from in-person surveys to telephone surveys. We're in the midst of another one of those paradigm shifts right now. And we're trying to figure out how to come to the other side of this shift and understand how we can work moving forward. Thank you. Um, let's go back to the New Hampshire primary earlier this year. New Hampshire and Iowa are normally known for setting the tone for how primary races will go, but Buttigieg, who performed well in both states, flailed after facing voters in South Carolina and was forced to drop out. Michael Bloomberg didn't even make an effort to compete in either state, and Joe Biden, who did not do well in either New Hampshire or Iowa, still won the nomination. Is this just a blip, or do you think that the role of Iowa and New Hampshire could change in future primaries? Well, there's nothing that's set in stone, and I'm certainly there. Um, neither political party has, has liked uh, the role that New Hampshire and Iowa have played in nominations, um, but um, those states didn't get to be at the front of the list because somebody made a conscious decision to do that. They were kind of historical accidents, and both states have continued that tradition, though. And politicians knew how to play those. Uh, I think the 2020 Democratic primary was different because the Democratic Party is actually more split than the Republican Party is, despite uh, Donald Trump. The Republican Party is split over Donald Trump and his personality, not over the ideology 
It's largely a conservative uh, party, and there are more conservatives in America than there are liberals. The Democratic Party, though, is being torn apart, as we saw starting in 2004 with the Howard Dean um, uh, run, uh, but certainly in 2016 with uh, Bernie Sanders, and this year with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, there is a significant liberal faction, uh, progressive faction within the Democratic Party, and an increasingly shrinking moderate faction uh, within the party. But that moderate faction still controls the levers of power within the party and the, the, the levers of money within the party. And I think in this case in 2020, there was no way that the mainstream of, of the party, the party itself, the organization of the Democratic Party, was going to let a um, Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren become the nominee because um, they would foresee that as a repeat of 1972 uh, with George McGovern, and it would be not only a, a disaster at the presidential level, but it would be a disaster down ticket as well. So I think that's what happened in 2020, is that the center of the party basically coalesced behind Joe Biden and made a deal even with the, the progressive wing of the party saying, yes, um, put Joe Biden up this time, he won't run again. Uh, we'll put a progressive candidate on as his uh, vice presidential candidate. We'll give you the opportunity as progressives to uh, write the platform for the party. Um, and I think this was this election is representing the transition of the Democratic Party that was kind of constructed in the wake of um, uh, the, 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 the 1968 Chicago election, kind of reinstated or reinforced uh, with Bill Clinton and the Democratic National Committee elections in the 1990s, um, and uh, the, the the shift towards a more progressive um, party structure, which I think was signaled by Barack Obama's election in 2008, uh, but certainly with uh, Bernie Sanders in 16 and 20. Yeah, thank you for your thoughts on that. It's really interesting to think of 2020 as maybe being an inflection point for the Democratic Party. I hadn't really considered that before. Yeah, I think it will be. And it's going to be fascinating if we presume that uh, um, Joe Biden wins. First off, does he make it through his term? And will he run again? Because once you've been president, it's very difficult to say no to a second term. Uh, the last person to do that willingly in American politics was Calvin Coolidge back in uh, um, 1920, uh, 1928, where he decided not to run again when he could. Yeah, and going to the Lyndon Johnson and 68 example, Biden probably won't be getting us into Vietnam again. So I, I take that back. I forgot all about Lyndon Johnson, and I would say his was not a willing uh, he wasn't willing to not run. He just knew that the writing was on the wall that he could not win. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, what, what you're doing is absolutely fascinating. And I'm wondering if you have any words of advice for students who are hoping to make a difference in, you know, polling, public opinion and politics. Well, in politics, I think to make a difference there is to actively get engaged. And I would always encourage people to get engaged in politics at the local level. Uh, what happens in your local races will impact you more on a day-to-day -day basis than anything that happens at a presidential level or a congressional level. Uh, so that would be the first thing. Uh, secondly, I would encourage people not to get too emotionally invested in any given candidate. 
Um, people who run for political office uh, have great character strengths, but they often historically they had great character flaws. And you've got to be able to take the good with the bad with the kind of people that want to run for office like that. Um, so I would just look at the long run, look at the broader um, goals that you have, what are the policy goals you hope to get, and understand that politics is a necessary sport, I guess, in, uh, but it's not, necessary, not necessarily a clean sport or an ethical sport. Uh, so you have to be ready for that. Uh, as far as in survey research, I strongly encourage people to get experience in survey research, not just for politics, but because it is a necessary data collection method uh, that's not going to go away. And it's incredibly valuable on the market, regardless if you're going into politics or if you're going into the business world or um, going into the not-for-profit world. You can use survey research in any one of those areas, even if you're in government itself, a, um, working as a, an employee of government, you, you would use, you need survey research. So it's something that really you need to understand uh, because you'll definitely be using it in your professional career. All right. Well, Professor Smith, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.